let's begin by telling people that I've worked with you for more than 40 years. And one of the things that we've done during that time is, is transform Sir John Beasley's paper archive into an online resource that brings our subject to a global audience. And to us, I think using these podcasts um, helps us to engage more directly with people who are going to be using the site and people in the educational world um, generally. Perhaps we could begin by looking back over the past 15 years since you retired. Um, every day you're in your office before um, 8 o'clock. Um, you must have seen many, many changes in this world of scholarship. Could you perhaps talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, well, things change all the time, of course. Um, in my office, I'm shielded from observing too much about what goes on outside. But it is perfectly clear that uh, life for the average academic researcher and teacher has changed very profoundly. I think in my time there's always time to do a great deal of research, a great deal of teaching, have lots of students, and still get the publications out without having to take six months off every other year to um, pretend one's working in a library somewhere or other. Uh, since in the last 15 years or so, quite clearly this has not been the case. There's a growing amount of um, administration, form filling and one thing and another. And it does seem necessary for however well-intentioned a uh, uh, professor or researcher or teacher uh, to look for extra time off to be able to do research and um, writing. This, is, this I think is a very great pity because teaching and research go together so very closely to cut oneself off from one to be able to indulge the other doesn't really help a great deal. And all the time you were a professor, which was perhaps over, what, 20 years? How many books did you publish? Oh, I don't know. Probably too 20, many. 30, probably too many. Whereas, as in my case, um, having been in this, this new world order, there's virtually Finding any time to do one's own research is, is virtually impossible. Well, some of the things I was doing followed a pattern, and once that pattern was established, like the handbooks, it wasn't difficult to keep it going, because I was dealing with material that I'd always been dealing with, and it, it came perfectly naturally to, to write about it. Fresh research on new subjects is always another matter, and for that one has to sort of build up a, a reserve of research and information before you actually sit down and start writing anything. In in Oxford, um, scholars like us, classical archaeologists, actually belong to two totally different parts of the university. Um, we belong to the Faculty of Classics in Humanities, and we also belong to the School of Archaeology in Social Sciences. From your perspective, what sort of challenges and opportunities does this split uh, offer? In fact, if I remember rightly, you championed this double life for us. Um, quite some time before you retired. Um, yes, it's always been a rather tricky matter, the question of the history of art in the University of Oxford, quite apart from the history of classical art. Um, Oxford must be almost the last major university in the world, actually, to have a professorship in the history of art. It was always blocked for one reason or another. In classics, art was taught from the end of the 19th century, classical art, but purely as an illustration of classical texts. And you studied sculpture to elucidate the text about ancient sculpture. You didn't study classical sculpture for its own sake. And uh, 
that attitude only really changed after the Second World War and after Beasley's retirement with the advent of Professor Ashnall in particular, that classical art began to be studied for its own sake and not totally with reference to texts. That inevitably brought us closer and closer to what we might call the, the real archaeologists who had as much or more sympathy with what we were trying to do than the hardcore classicists who were totally devoted to their, to their texts in, in, in one form or another. And um, it seemed natural after a while because there was um, not necessarily more sympathy but um, more common approach with the archaeologists to shift a little more in their direction. Uh, but out ever totally ab abandoning the classical side because one couldn't possibly. It's a, a fact which is sometimes in fact forgotten by our classical colleagues that virtually all classical archaeologists certainly up to say ten years ago started as straightforward classicists and they know their texts as well as, as anybody else and what they have done is added a dimension to their understanding of the ancient world by looking at the physical evidence for it, its art and the way it expresses itself in things other than texts. So uh, there's, a certain, there's a certain split, there's a certain struggle here uh, going on. We are not only contributing to the study of world art and archaeology by associating ourselves with the archaeologists, but we are trying to um, explain to the, to the rest of the classical world that there's, there's much more out there than the texts of Homer and, and Euripides, and that if they want to understand the context in which um, the classics in the traditional sense has been understood, they've got to go far, far away from the text and start looking at other things as well. So this is what we've been really as it were, fighting for and pushing for, and with, uh, I think, some considerable success. Of course, British universities are largely funded by the government, which means under a, a government uh, initiative. The recent government promotion of impact as a means of assessing scholarship has caused what the British like to call a, a fuss, a very big fuss. From your perspective, is impact assessment a good thing? Uh, is it a bad thing? Is there any, any medium line here? Uh, well, I think it's pretty clearly a bad thing, and I think most people in most universities would agree to that, unless their department and their work is totally committed to something which they rely upon the government funding, because it appears to serve government purposes. The idea that scholarship is worthwhile in its, in its own right, the scholarship and understanding of even remote antiquity and the beginnings of man, <clears throat> is one which has generally been accepted by the civilized world for a very long time. And I don't see how any government today can, can abandon this attitude. They can appear to in an attempt to save money, but it's, it's destructive of the civilization which they're meant to be trying to uphold. I suppose one could produce some funny arguments saying that archaeology and the study of art is helpful for the economy in, in that it encourages people to um, look at objects, look at museums, preserve ancient sites. It uh, occupies a great deal of time, for instance, on television. Therefore, one can say that it has a certain impact in that respect. These are valid arguments, but basically totally bogus when it comes to the questions of absolute scholarship and what one's trying to do.
that people sitting in a back room somewhere worrying away to lists of names or numbers are in fact contributing a very great deal to our general understanding of the history of man and that should be importance to anyone even to a even to a modern government a month or so ago i put in a major grant application to a british funding agency and i was asked to write two pages on impact of my project and then I was invited, which meant that if I didn't do it, I certainly wouldn't get the grant, to write another two pages. In actual fact, although I didn't like doing this, I found that because of the public access work we've done with the Beasley Archive and trying to get to a global audience, that I was actually able to, um, as it were, tick the boxes of the impact statement. So I, I, from my perspective, it's it's not a totally bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing in, in that respect. And the fact that we are, as they say now, reaching out to more to the schools or even beyond, not exactly to the cradle as yet, um, is a very good thing. But what we're doing is in, in, in the long run to in, improve public awareness of our culture and civilization, which goes something beyond pensions and relief or whatever it might be is 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 a good thing it's some it's part of our function i think for any humanities department and if we can concede we succeed in doing this by bringing the sort of material that we deal with and we enjoy and work with to the attention of a broader public this is obviously a very good thing but this shouldn't dictate what we do uh, our, our agenda is to make as, as full and, and proper and intelligible understanding of the antiquity as we possibly can, and it mustn't be dictated by the need to have on a readily accessible on a, on a cell phone, for instance, immediate information about what a red figure bars is or something like this. This is a byproduct which is very useful, but this should not dictate what we do and how we do it. Oh, absolutely not, but I am terribly keen to develop a, an iPod app <laughs> for classical art so that people who go into a museum on their mobile device can immediately have access to the highest quality Fine, information. Yes, yes, but that mustn't dictate what we do. Oh, not at all. It, it's, it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct. And it means that, that people <coughs> like us simply must be prepared to give more more of our time for the education of of a wider public for the public benefit. Well, I think in our area, classical art and archaeology, we're doing that all the time. Um, not only through the sort of mechanical process of creating databases, spreading pictures around the world, giving people access to them and all the rest of it, but in, um, in, in, in books and publication, which are after all still read and bought, um, in attitudes which are then passed via those books to museum curators, the way displays are uh, laid out, this sort of thing. The sort of general books which are issued very often nowadays too, which are non-academic books, which are, which are based on academic knowledge. There's a great spate of um, you know, novels about detective stories in ancient Rome and what have you. And um, they go on a great deal. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of magic and excitement in in antiquity, which is not purely historical, but but also visual, and we are able to provide that excitement. 
You, you look at the ordinary average newspaper from time to time, Sunday newspapers, pages or half pages will be devoted to looking at what has just been found out about uh, the remote antiquity of man, what he has managed to achieve with uh, sometimes sort of between the lines, well, have we done any better? Well, I think we, we, we're very lucky in that we have an, a wonderful subject. True enough, I think it is a brilliant subject.